This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the host and producer of Poured Over. I'm so excited. We have a debut author with us today, Grace D. Lee. Her new novel, and I should say her first novel, Portrait of a Thief, and it's just out from Tiny Reparations Press, which is Phoebe Robinson's imprint with Penguin Dutton Books. And Grace, I'm so excited to meet you, but who are you? Because I think there's some folks who don't know who you are yet. Hi, everyone. Hi, Miwa. It is so great to be here. I am Grace Lee. I am the author of Portrait of a Thief, a heist novel about college students stealing back looted art from Western museums and inspired by a true story. I am a current medical student at Stanford University. I am super excited to have my book come out very soon. I am also a little bit nervous, but glad to be here. Okay. The nervous part, you don't need to worry about that. We're just going to have a lot of fun and Folks, just be prepared. There is going to be some fast and the furious conversation. <laughs> I'm just warning you now. <laughs> so Portrait of a Thief, we've got five characters. We've got Will mm-hmm. Chen, his sister Irene, their friend Daniel, who's not quite a childhood friend, but they've known him for about a decade. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got Alex, who has a connection to Will. We'll get there maybe. <laughs> and then there's Lily, who is Irene's roommate at Duke. Mm-hmm. And Will kicks everything off when he steals something from the museum and he's called out and suddenly they have a mysterious benefactor and suddenly these five kids are set up to pull off this crazy heist, which in fact is based on a true story. Would you let readers know how that story started? It started several years ago. Chinese art began mysteriously disappearing from Western museums. So there was a string of robberies across the Western world No one knew who was behind it. Even now, no one knows who's behind it. And the really interesting thing here is that all the pieces that were getting stolen had previously been looted from China before. And so there are a lot of theories being floated around about who's behind it if maybe China finally wants its looted art back. And when I heard about all these thefts, as someone who has always loved heist movies and also at that time was a recent college graduate, I wanted to write a story about what it would look like if it were Chinese American college students who decided to steal back this art and how they would pull something like this off. And the art in question in your novel mm-hmm. comes from the Summer Palace, which was destroyed by French and British troops in the late 1800s, if I have my mm-hmm. historical facts right. Mm-hmm. And a great Many objects ended up in Paris mm-hmm. and also throughout Scandinavia, which is a little trippy <laughs> to me. I didn't realize that piece of it. And you have a great set piece that happens in Stockholm. But I had no idea that there's a museum in Bergen, Norway. <laughs> I knew there was plenty of art in London and I knew about the Paris collection. And certainly we mm-hmm. have quite a lot in New York and Boston and other places in the States. But it's wild to me <laughs> that the Scandinavians... Yeah. The art went all over the place. Mm-hmm. So we've got these five kids, all of whom want to do well in school. In fact, Daniel's about to enter med school. He's applying into med school right now. So a lot of that process was fun and stressful to relive. Mm-hmm. Will is a senior, a graduating senior at Harvard who's mm-hmm. not entirely sure what he's going to do next. His little sister, Irene, though... She has her entire life planned out. She knows what her next internship is going to be. She knows where. She's a rising senior at Duke, as is Lily. And Lily is a mechanical engineer student who also is a street racer. (laughs) (laughs) 
mechanical engineering. You can put things apart, put it back together. Exactly. And then there's Alex, who Will has met on a dating app. She's at MIT, but she withdraws because she's going to go take a job early at Google because, frankly, her parents need financial help. Mm -hmm. They have a restaurant in Chinatown in New York, and they are not living a comfortable middle-class existence. And Mm -hmm. Alex really wants to make sure that her grandmother and her parents and her siblings are taken care of, and she's their ticket. Mm -hmm. And not that that's ever been specifically said to her, but she definitely feels a responsibility towards her family. And to a certain extent, all of these kids feel a responsibility (laughs) to their family. But let's start with Alex, and then I want to go to Lily, because Lily also has a really great backstory. Yeah. So I really love Alex because she is young, like talented Asian American software engineer. And she went to MIT and it was basically all her dreams, all her ambitions concentrated in this one place. But when she gets an offer to go to Silicon Valley for all this money, it seems like really the only path that she can take. And so she's there. She is you know, working as a software engineer. She's in Silicon Valley, making a bunch of money, and yet somehow still not quite satisfied with her life. And so when Will calls her up with this offer that is irresponsible and reckless and unlike any of the decisions she's made before, but also represents this opportunity to earn this money, start the life that she finally wants to live. She can't really say no. She's also a point of view that we do see and we don't see. I mean, she's a restaurant kid and it's not Mm -hmm. the first time we've seen a restaurant kid show up in American literature by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. But you also gave her a way out. I mean, the restaurant was not going to be the only thing that she ever did. Silicon Valley may or may not be the only thing that Alex ends up doing. But how did Alex as a character start for you? In writing this book, I started with the heist archetypes that I needed. Every heist story, you need a leader, you need a getaway driver, you need a thief, a con artist, and a hacker. So when I got to the hacker role, I thought, you know, what is our modern day equivalent of a hacker? It's got to be a software engineer. There are always stories about these big tech companies recruiting people who are fresh out of college or haven't even left college yet. And so I knew I kind of wanted that for Alex. And I knew I needed to give her a compelling reason to leave MIT for Silicon Valley. In terms of her background, I lived in New York City for a couple of years. I loved going to Chinatown. On my mom's side in China, we have family that owns a restaurant there. That's how I got the restaurant name. So it is an homage to my family in China. It was really fun to write Alex and to make her this sort of complicated character who has this heavy weight of family and what she feels she owes them, even when all they really want is for her to succeed and to be happy. And also just to give her her own dreams and ambitions and navigate balancing that with all that she wants to do for her family. And Alex's family is two generations in. She's the third generation of her family Mm -hmm. to be in America. So her connections to China are not as tight as, say, Daniel, who we're going to get to in a minute. But Mm -hmm. there's also Lily. The getaway driver who grew up in Galveston. And I love this character too, because she's kind of like, yeah, you know, I can take anything apart and I can rebuild it. She has a great scene in Paris where she gets out of a pickle with a bad rental car, a terrible, terrible rental car, which felt like an homage to Fast and the Furious 3, but 
But let's talk about Lily for a second. Her parents escaped China after the Cultural Revolution, which was a very scary moment in Chinese history for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And they have not maintained connections. They do not have family. They're a family in Galveston, Texas. And you lived in Houston as a kid, right? We are currently recording from my childhood home in Pearland, Texas, an hour away from Galveston, Mm -hmm. where I would always go for our family beach vacations. I spent the majority of my childhood in Texas, and a lot of Lily and her experiences in Texas come from my own experiences growing up here. What's your favorite part of being a Texan? I love Texas for all its flaws. I learned a lot about it. We had a year of Texas history, which apparently other states don't do. So in my time away from Texas, I'm gradually learning about all the things that are special to this place that I used to take for granted. And Lily doesn't take Texas for granted, though. Galveston is home. Mm -hmm. Galveston is the place that she dreams of. Galveston is the place where she became Lily, the car fanatic, the mechanic in a pinch kind of Mm -hmm. thing. She's a really terrific gal, but if it wasn't for her roommate, Irene Chen, the most perfect person on the planet, although she is a little snippy, which is kind of fun. Lily probably wouldn't have become part of this crew, but Mm -hmm. she trusts her roommate. She trusts Irene Mm -hmm. because Irene can do no wrong. (laughs) And I sort of keep poking at Irene because we know she's not perfect, but God, she's a fun character to Mm read. Irene and her brother Will have a really great sibling relationship. And there were times too, Will is the oldest, but there were times too where I felt like Irene read like she was the older sibling Mm. and Will was the baby brother. But let's talk about Irene and Will for a second and their relationship to each other because that really informs how Daniel comes into play. I'm the oldest of three siblings. And so I love writing siblings. For these characters, Will, he is the one who kicks everything off. He is the heist leader, art history major. And to Irene, he seems at times both perfect, you know, the Harvard son, but also irresponsible in that he goes to Harvard, this place where every immigrant parent dreams of sending their child. And he ends up choosing art history, which like Irene looks at that and she's like, where's the job market, Will? Like, what are you doing? with all these opportunities that you've been given. And for Irene, she's our con artist. And so she is able to talk her way out of anything. She is at Duke studying public policy to the outside world. She's used to getting exactly what she wants all the time. And Will looks at his younger sister and thinks, you know, she is everything I am, but better. And so for both of them, They see the other person as who they ought to live up to and never really talk about that because, you know, even though they have conflict throughout the book, they are close siblings. When Will asks Irene on this heist, she thinks it's a terrible idea, but he's her brother. And so, of course, she's going to say yes. And I think some of that came from my own relationship with my siblings, where I love them all. We're all very close. And at the same time, I look at them and I think... These are really great people. These are really great kids. You know, we're constantly, whether deliberately or not, measuring ourselves using the metrics of each other. And this brings us to Daniel, our thief with the very talented hands. I don't know if that means Daniel's going to be a surgeon because he's also applying (laughs) to medical school. (laughs) But Daniel has a different background from the other four. He is a kid who has come to the States with his family. His mother was very sick. They came to the States for treatment. His dad fell in love with America almost Mm -hmm. before Daniel did, even though Daniel's younger. And that doesn't always happen. And Daniel's dad, we're not going to tell people what Daniel's dad does for a living. (laughs) That fact is into the story. But I think 
readers should come to that information on their own. It's a moment where you think, "Uh uh-huh, okay, I don't know how these kids are going to get out of this, but okay. And Daniel's relationship with his dad, it's very sweet. And it's very different from what you typically see as either an Asian parent-child or an Asian-American parent-child. You know, there's this sort of cold ferocity that seems to come along for so many people between that. And and yet here we are with these two men who are trying to figure out where they fit with each other because Mm -hmm. mom's gone. Each has a different view of where they are in America and where they are in their lives. And yet they do love each other. It's really sweet. So, can we talk about that relationship for a second? Because it feels like that was a really important point for you to make as the writer. Absolutely. So, I loved writing Daniel and his dad. The big thing that I wanted to write about here is the way that Chinese parents express love and how much that varies. With Daniel and his dad, there is so much love between them that is hard for either of them to see. And so, Daniel constantly feels like he's not good enough for his father, like he is expected to be someone else. But we as the reader from an objective point of view can see all the small things that Daniel can't about the ways that his father loves him. And I really wanted to talk about also the difference between being in the U.S. as a Chinese American and immigrating here in your early years versus immigrating here later, where Daniel's dad comes here and he is so determined to be an American, to fit in, to do exactly what he's supposed to do versus Daniel. He left his whole life behind and he was still growing, still trying to figure out who he is. He comes to this new country. It's just him and his dad. His mom is gone and he feels out of place. And even among other Chinese Americans who feel so comfortable in America, it doesn't really feel like this is the place for him. But also in China, where he thinks about his home, he has all his family there, but his mother is no longer around. And so he was a really interesting and difficult character to write because he is dealing with so much in terms of figuring out who he is and navigating his relationship with his dad. So we've got Will, Mm -hmm. got Irene. We've got Lily and Alex and Daniel. So we've got the crew of five. Who showed up first? Was it Will? It was Will. Okay. So how did you get into his head? How did you know this was the kid? When I first learned about these heists, I thought, this is so fun. And I love heist movies. My siblings and I, growing up, we'd always talk. We've got to plan out who we'd be in a heist. And so that was the background I was coming in. And I thought, it's important to return Ludadar. If someone had asked me to do this, oh, maybe I would have said yes. And then I thought about it for a couple of seconds more. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. I need to go to medical school. My parents would kill me. Everything could go wrong. And so I started thinking, what kind of person would say yes. Someone who is you know, a little bit like me, but also feels really strongly about these issues and maybe you know, doesn't quite know what his future looks like. And so I wanted to create Will, who is this perfect Chinese-American son. He's at Harvard. He's achieved this dream. He's like this very ambitious young Chinese-American, and yet he's not fully satisfied with his life. And even after achieving what many view as the end goal of being at this great school. He doesn't know what happens next, but then the heist presents itself to him. And he thinks, this is my chance to do something, to make a difference in the world in a way that is pretty risky, but also 
really exciting and this huge opportunity when he had previously expected to end up going into art history, finding a job where he never fully feels fulfilled, but is still trying to do the best that he can to do what he loves, but also do as his parents hope for him and be his parents' American dream. Will also has a great line when he's describing what art history, he's actually challenging (laughs) someone who's an employee at the Met in New York. And he says, well, honestly, I think art history, you think it's about static collections and things that don't change. But he said, no, art history really is about the things that change. It's about change itself, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really great POV to have, especially if you're going to go return objects (laughs) to your original owners. (laughs) Let's talk about the history for a second, because the Summer Palace is destroyed by British and French soldiers at the tail end of the 1800s. And the Chinese have left the ruins of this palace as a park. And so mm-hmm. you can today you can wander around and be on these grounds that were destroyed. The grounds are so large, it took 4,500 soldiers three days to burn the compound. And it probably took them less time to take what they took and send mm-hmm. it to Paris and London and all of the places where it ended up, some in the hands of private collectors, some in museum collections. And, you know, there was this idea, and this is the same period, basically, when Shanghai is divided up into the French concession and the British concession and the American concession. So there are people in China from the West who are thinking, well, this is mine. They don't learn to speak Chinese necessarily. They're eating Western food. They're dressing Western style. They are living, if you've ever been to Shanghai and seen the Bund, it looks like (laughs) Europe. But this is a really interesting way for you to write about colonialism and a really interesting way for you to talk about the Chinese diaspora. Yes, I think that though this is a heist book, I really think of it as an identity book disguised as a heist book because all of my feelings about being Chinese American, being part of the Chinese diaspora are in some way here. And I grew up, I was born and raised here in the US and yet like many Asian Americans here, I never felt like I fully fit in. I was often asked where I was really from. I was complimented on my English. And also when I went back to see my family in China, because all my extended family is there, I would get questions that were well-meaning about whether I could speak Chinese, whether I could use chopsticks. And now that I'm older, I can recognize that all of that came from a place of love and pride for, you know, their American relatives and wanting to make me feel comfortable. But as a young adult, as a teenager, as a kid, I felt, where can I go where I can fully belong? This book has a lot of my thoughts about art and colonialism and returning looted art. I wanted to address all that in the context of what it means to be Chinese American and the feeling of displacement that can be applied to both art and all of us that are part of the diaspora. And it's really fun watching these five kids evolve. Everyone has their own version of what's going on and how they respond to each other and how they respond to the situation. And it's all very fun as it unfolds. But there's one point in the book, it's early on, and they are figuring out how they're going to make all of this happen. And they give themselves homework. You reference this in the book, and and I, I suspect this might be based on your own homework as well. But they have the books that they've read. And the Mm. movies that they've watched. Now, granted, there's other stuff that they're figuring out, Mm. like how to break into security systems and how not to get caught. But 
there was a little bit of fun <laughs> homework. What did you read and what did you watch? And I know you said earlier that you and your siblings are big fans of heist movies, and I suspect there's a lot of good stuff in there. Specifically for Portrait of a Thief, what were you looking at? What were you reading? I love this question. And I loved doing research for Portrait of a Thief because I got to watch all of my favorite things and call it work. And so the scene that I think you're referencing where all the characters sit around taking notes while they watch Ocean's Eleven, I did exactly that. I pulled it up on my laptop, I pressed play, and then I had my notepad out. I was writing down every plot point that happened because I knew to write a heist, I had to have everything planned out. So I rewatched all the Ocean's movies. I went through the Fast and Furious movies. There's a really fun Jackie Chan movie called CZ12 that I discovered. And it's about Jackie Chan stealing back the Zodiac heads, the same Zodiac heads from my book. And he does it in a really fun way. I won't spoil anything, but there is a scene with skydiving and also a giant volcano. So it is a little different from my book, but I had so much fun watching it. I ended up watching all these movies. I read a lot of nonfiction about art heists and art crime because I wanted it to be realistic. And I am actually a tour guide at one of Stanford's art museums. I also did some walking around there, checking out security cameras, that sort of thing. Here we have this amazing cast of Asian American kids who in some cases fly under the radar in a larger society because they're playing the roles that have sort of mm -hmm. excellent student, excellent student, all of this kind of thing. But you have sold the rights to Portrait of a Thief to Netflix. It's in development now, which I'm very excited about. I'm also assuming that because we now live in this time that we live in, they're not going to do what they've done previously and change all of the Asian and Asian American characters to white people. There oh. was that movie, The Kids yeah. from MIT, who won... <laughs> Pajillions of dollars in Vegas counting cards playing blackjack. The movie version took out all the Asian kids. And I was like, well, what? <laughs> I think I watched that movie and I thought, how fun. And I also thought another movie with no Asian characters. Well, and you're executive producing the Netflix piece. So yes. I'm not entirely sure when you sleep because you are a medical student. <laughs> you have written this novel and now you're working <laughs> on the streaming series, which feel free to not sleep. What's that like switching between mediums? Writing a book, obviously you've got these beats, right? You mm -hmm. bring the team together. They do this, they do this. And I'm trying obviously to stay away from spoilers. <laughs> There's a reversal and then everyone gets back together. Like we know there is this classic structure to heist films because that's the fun of it. Heist books, heist films, all of this fun. So you know how you've got to structure this thing. You know who your characters are. Now you're working on a screenplay, but is there any time for you to be surprised by what happens? Absolutely, yes. And I think that's the reason why I write books is because I love the surprise. I write them because I want to read the book, but it doesn't exist yet. And so I figure I have to write it. When I was writing Portrait of a Thief, I knew who the characters were and I knew the loose plot outline in terms of these are the beats that we have to hit. And this is how everything comes together in the end. But I think writing the individual scenes where they get to know each other, where they're put in new surprising situations, all of that felt like discovering them in a new way, because I think it's different to write it out, to see them interact in ways that I wasn't previously expecting from them. And so even in writing it where I had it plotted out, there were things that would happen where 
new possibilities would it branch out. Do we have an example that we can give people without spoiling anything? We are talking about a caper novel, so it's kind of hard to get into yeah. details, but is there a moment maybe or yeah, a character I'm, that surprised you more than the others? In actuality, the big thing was when they first scattered, mm-hmm. Will and Irene didn't get into a fight. There oh, was no fight there. All that happened was Daniel's dad discovered what was going on and then they scattered. But then I got there and I was like, something is missing. There's an aspect of the personal nature where we have Daniel, but I want to bring in everyone else. And we had this rising tension. So I can talk about the tension between siblings in just a more general way. Okay. So you raised the stakes, basically. You raised mm-hmm. the stakes and gave them consequences because Irene and Will, it's always very clear that they're kind of a unit, even though they're not going to mm-hmm. school together, even though they are, pardon the pun, thick as thieves. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. That's that is so terrible when you say that, but I just couldn't resist. But again, this brings me back to something I said earlier, which is there's a lot of heart and soul in this book, that it's not just about diaspora, that it's not just a caper flick. You can read this on a couple of different levels, and you are published by Tiny Reparations, which is Phoebe Robinson's imprint. It has a very specific mission, which I love, and I think you're the third book they've published so far. There are more to come. How does that feel? To have a publisher whose mission is one you share in your work. It was really a dream come true for me on every level. It was so surprising because I finished writing this book during the pandemic and I really wrote it for me. I didn't think anything would come about. I wanted something that could bring me a bit of joy where Asian American characters could live their lives and do something as fun and ridiculous as robbing art museums across the world. And so I was surprised and delighted when it got an offer of publication. And even more so because I think in an industry that is largely white, that my story about Asian Americans finding their place in the world, anti-colonialism and diaspora could find a home with Tiny Reparations, where my editor is a Black woman. The founder of Tiny Rep is a Black woman. Almost everyone on my team is a person of color. It just is so unusual, I think, in publishing and just really wonderful to work with people who really, really get the themes of my book. So let's talk about some of the writers who have influenced you, because you did also study creative writing when you were an undergrad. So you had a double major, biology and creative writing, yeah? A major in biology and a minor in creative writing. Okay. So yeah, but that's not a tiny workload. So how did you end up choosing creative writing for a minor? But really, who are the writers that come back to or who are the writers who've had the biggest influence on you? I have always loved to read. When I was in elementary school, I believe my parents had a meeting with my school librarian because they were concerned I was reading too much. And my librarian said something like, you know, that's not usually an issue. I think she'll turn out okay. (laughs) So it was very natural, I think, that when I got the opportunity for the first time in college to study creative writing, I took it. It was also in college where I had my first real exposure to Asian American literature. And so I still remember the very first book that I read where I really felt represented in, and that was Chemistry by Waco Wong. That book absolutely changed my life because it made me realize that stories about people who looked like me, who had similar thoughts and experiences, had a place in literature. All the stories I had written beforehand had been about white people and 
that's just part of the experience of growing up in America, consuming media where no one ever looks like you, where you think, well, maybe this media is just not meant for people like me. And so I will fit myself into it however I can. Have you had a chance to read Joan is Okay yet? It's Wacky's new novel. It's so good. It's so good. I run the Stanford Med API book club and we are, <laughs> we're, we're, we're reading it this weekend. We read chemistry for the very first book club I ran and now we're reading Joan is Okay. So I'm in the middle of my reread. It's so good. I love all her work. She so is fun. so, so funny. And Julia Tsuka, actually her new novel, The Swimmers, the first half about the actual swimmers in this pool is wildly funny. And I just, I always appreciate a little bit of humor in my fiction, but who else? Weika Wong. I recently read Fault Lines by Emily Atami. I adored it. It was also so funny. I loved Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok. I've read so many books in recent years written by Asian American women. And it was something I never imagined. I never thought it was even possible. And now it's a lot of what I read. So I feel immensely lucky to be alive and to be writing and to be reading in this time is such a privilege. Okay. So we've talked books, we've talked movies, but like you, I am a huge fan and I'm going to totally admit this on Cordover, but anyone who knows me in real life knows this is true. I really like the Fast and the Furious movies. I have all the brain span in the world for beautiful books and all the patience in the world for beautiful books. But unfortunately, my taste in movies makes Netflix and other streamers think I'm 12, which is fine. <laughs> but do you have a favorite Fast and the Furious movie? Of course. Fast Five. It mm -hmm. was the first Fast and Furious movie I saw in theaters. And it was just so much fun. I think I'm like you have in books. I want something beautiful, something moving, something sweeping. In movies, I want cars. I want action, drama. I love the Fast and Furious movies all so much. And I think it's so fun because while they have all the street racing, the heists, each one becomes bigger and bigger. They also have this bit of a core about family. I love those moments, the few quiet moments that we get in them where, you know, you think all of these people are coming together and they all really love each other. Here you are taking big political ideas like colonialism and reparations. Let's face it, returning art is a form of reparation mm -hmm. and diaspora and family because family can be complicated even when you love them. And you're influenced by the pacing of movies, certainly. And the classic idea of a caper. And yet here we are with this really original, fun novel from a med student. What's next for you? I mean, are you going to practice medicine and write novels on the side? Like, what are we looking at here? <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. That's the plan. I will say this whole experience has been really, really weird for me because, you know, for the past several years, I've known that I was going into medicine and now I'm in medical school. Writing was this thing that, I kind of did on the side. I didn't really talk about, you know, my friends were publishing papers and I was sitting away at my little computer tapping on my stories. And now all of a sudden I have a book coming out and the med student aspect is the little bonus, which I've always thought of as another way around. I'm starting my clerkships in the hospital in June. And so I will be spending all of my waking hours likely in the hospital learning surgery and medicine and all the other things that go into becoming a doctor. And then afterwards, I will go into residency and practice medicine. Hopefully find a little time to also get some writing done. So wait, is residency when you pick your specialty? Yes. Okay, so so you have in time. med school, you do everything. You do a, a month 
of each thing you rotate out and then you apply into a residency where you do something specific. Do you have an idea of what you might want to do? Or are you still kind of like, eh, I'll get there when I get there. But I mean, you sort of need to have an idea, don't you? I mean, it's like starting a novel. You sort of need an idea of where you're going. You may not know exactly how you're going to get there Mm -hmm. or who's going to show up on the way, but you should have a basic blueprint. (laughs) (laughs) I have a general idea. Mm -hmm. I think I have done a bit of process of elimination. I prefer medicine over surgery. And I prefer, I think, specialties where I get longitudinal patient contact. And so as opposed to emergency medicine, where you see someone once and then never again, I think I'd like to get to know my patients over a longer course of time. I think I want to do something where I can work with communities of color and low-income communities and do the sort of community work that I really like. But that leaves my options still pretty open. I have these big buckets. Everyone says that once you start in the hospital on your rotations, things change. So don't hold me to it if in two years I'm applying into surgery. (laughs) But I think I have a vague idea. What kind of medicine do you think Daniel ended up studying? I think he's going into surgery. I'm very slowly working on something new. It is tentatively set at Stanford Med. And so Daniel may have a cameo or a few cameos. I've been thinking a lot about what kind of specialty is the best fit for him. Do you have a favorite character of the five? I don't have a favorite. I will say that of all of them, Will probably has a little bit more of me because I started off with him and he has a lot of my ambition and my uncertainty. But all of them, you know, I wouldn't have been able to write them if they weren't me in some way. What do you want people to know? What do you want readers to know? about Portrait of a Thief and your gang of five? I think the big thing for me is that though this is a heist novel, the characters are really the heart of it. And so I hope that there's the fun and the action of the street races and the heists and all the adventure, but ultimately the core of the book and what was most rewarding and valuable for me in writing it was these characters as they figure out their identity and their relationships and who they want to be in their early 20s. You know, Grace, before I let you go, there's one thing that I really, and I've hit on this a couple of times in the span of this conversation, because it's a really important point. Your characters all represent different pieces of an Asian American experience. And in some cases, and honestly, is this why I wanted to lead with Alex and Lily? Absolutely, because everyone has a different story. And I really like those women. I like all of your characters, but I really like those women. So can we talk about that for a second? I mean, that was intentional, right? You wanted to make sure that people understood that we're not just cookie cutter. Yes. So I think that obviously there are a lot of stereotypes about Asian Americans as the model minority, as the perpetual foreigner. Something I wanted to address in this book is the fact that the Asian American experience and the Chinese American experience varies so widely based on you know location, family, when you came to the United States. And so the idea that all Chinese Americans are one sort of way is never really true. And Alex is fully American. She is third generation American. And I think that people and their expectations of what it means to be Chinese American don't think about the fact that many Chinese Americans have been here for a long time. And for Lily, she grew up in Texas, never had much connection to China, and is still figuring out what she wants out of that relationship. And then we have 
Daniel, who came here when he was 10. And then we have, of course, Will and Irene, whose parents immigrated and they grew up getting what I think many assume is the typical, but also assume it often is the only Chinese American experience of growing up in the Bay Area, being Chinese American, and navigating their identity going back and forth between the U.S. and China. You cover a lot of ground with these five characters. I am also going to shout out The Family Chow by Lan Samantha Chang, too, for listeners who may be looking for something to follow up Portrait of a Thief with. It's a post-immigrant novel about a Chinese-American family with a restaurant in Wisconsin. And it's loosely based on the Brothers Karamazov, but it's pretty great. (laughs) I think your books are in conversation. I think both of your novels are in conversation. And I don't think you've met Lan, but if you have a chance, I think you guys would get on. Really, really I've, well. I've been excited <laughs> for that book for a long time. I, you know, I realize medical school and everything else, and you're running your medical school's book club on top of it, but try and steal some time because it's totally worth it. Grace, it's been so much fun hanging out with you, but I was promised X amount of time and I don't want to run over. So <laughs> thank you so much. Portrait of a Thief is out now. Yay. <laughs> Welcome, book lovers, to another TBR Top Off, where we're going to recommend three titles that you should definitely nab when you head in to pick up Grace D. Lee's Portrait of a Thief. No one leaves the bookstore with just one book. My name is Margie, and I'm talking to you from my marvelous home store in Northville, Michigan. And with me is my book buddy, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hey, Margie. I hope you're doing well. I'm coming to you from Cincinnati, and I am stoked to talk about books. Yeah, let's I do am this. Too. Mark and I just got I to mean, be part of this amazing experience where we got to listen to Nevo talk a little bit about Chosen and the Beautiful, which is our monthly pick, and we are so geeked about that as well. It was so much fun. It was great, and now we've got three great books to go along with Grace D. Lee. So, Mark, you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. I. I'm pretty excited for Portrait of a Thief. The buzz for this is really, really potent. I think it's going to be just a blast to read. So I chose a book that kind of captures that sort of page-turning excitement of a heist novel. And the book is a fantasy classic that actually Margie sort of heavy-handedly recommended to me <laughs> called The Lies of Locke Lamora oh, it's uh, so by Scott Lynch. Uh, yes. It follows a group of thieves who call themselves the gentleman bastards who kind of on the surface do things like petty pickpocketing, kind of lighter fare debauchery. But in truth, they are Robin Hood level con artists and they are fleecing the wealthy elite in just really, really fun, fantastic ways. Unfortunately, their exploits get them kind of wrapped up in a big grand and sinister scheme. But readers will really delight in all of their exploits and antics. It is the first of a purported seven book series. So far, I think there have been two sequels out so far. And it's just a lot of fun if you're looking for something that's kind of Ocean's Eleven-esque or Portrait of a Thief-esque, where you just have all these great players just flouncing the man. uh, This is just a fun one to jump into. And that is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Yeah, I am definitely putting the double thumbs up to that. It's a great series. There are three books out. Yes. Uh, Get all three. (laughs) Okay. I actually have a nonfiction to talk about, and I'm just mentioning that because when I start talking about what the book's about, you're going to be like, that can't be real. So (laughs) 
I'm going to talk about The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson. This is a behind the scenes peek at my own TBR because I have been waiting to read this one and thinking about this episode really made me bump it up the pile there. But it contains an unusual heist and I believe speaks to appropriation as well in discussing the proprietary way that humanity takes from the natural world to advance our own ends. In 2009, Edwin Rist, a 20-year-old American music student studying abroad at the Royal Academy of Music, breaks into the British Natural History Museum and steals hundreds of bird skins, which Mm. no one even notices for weeks because, frankly, the staff didn't think any of them really had any monetary value. Um, They really only used scientifically, so why would anyone steal them? They discover that the missing skins are the most colorful and vibrant from the collections, and an investigation is launched on this tenuous lead. So Johnson includes three incredibly engrossing parts to this story. First, the history of actually collecting natural specimens in the Victorian era. So there's naturalists that are trying to advance science. There are rich men who are trying to advance their own personal prestige, and everyone from fashionistas to fly tires wanted in on the action. All of the shells, the flowers, the feathers, the furs. In part two, we get Edwin Rist, how he got interested in birds, the motivations behind the theft, uh, what he planned to do with these bird skins and feathers, the quiet community of collectors that don't want to talk about it, and his surprising defense when he's ultimately caught. Which brings us to part three, in which Johnson acts on his suspicion that Rist had an accomplice and goes on a personal quest to track down the remaining skins because a bunch are still missing. So (laughs) I hope you can see why I really, really want to start digging into this one. It's just a really incredible story about a very interesting theft. And again, that is called The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson. That sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got one more to pop into the mix. Um, I kind of dug through the depths and found sort of a classic from the past. Um, And that is the 1963 novel, The Grifters by Jim Thompson. Ooh, baby. This is a con story masterpiece. Roy Dillon is the main character. He is hardworking salesman, all around kind of like, quote unquote, good guy. Everybody just has nice things to say about him, except he doubles as a pretty successful con artist and all around huge dirtbag. He gets wrapped up in a job that goes pretty far south and ends up in the hospital. And this is where you get to kind of meet and hang out with the three main women in his life. His mother, Lily, who is like a human version of a rusty buzzsaw. His kind of off again, on again, girlfriend, Moira, who is also a con artist and also semi dirtbaggish. And then the one nice person in the entire book, who is Carol. She is the nurse that kind of comes to his aid at the hospital and has sort of a haunted past herself. There has that kind of cross and intertwine make for just a really daring mystery, but a bleak as hell look at how kind of craptastic humans can behave. It's a very pessimistic writing style, but it's also, it's one of those books where you still kind of care about these characters and you almost start to feel like you're on their side until they sort of show their true colors once more and you're like oh god you're the worst Mm. but it's 
fun, it's twisty, and the ending is gobsmacking. It's a great ride, and that is The Grifters by Jim Thompson. That is marvelous. <laughs> That's going to bring us to the end of the TBR Top Off. Thanks for listening to Port Over. Make sure to follow us so you don't miss an episode and follow Barnes & Noble on social media at Barnes & Noble. Super easy. I'm Margie. It'd be great if you followed my home store at BN Northville. And I'm also on Instagram at Margie Bookbrain. And I am Mark coming at you from Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester, or you can pop onto my Instagram if you'd like at bookmark79. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Happy reading. Thank you. Happy reading. Bye. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.